afternoon. Today we are reading in the book of Exodus, surprise, chapter 19 all the way through chapter 20, verse 17. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, 
for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is God's word. Well, thanks, Ashley, very much for reading that for us. Do keep that open and let me lead us in a prayer that as we come to this great passage and these great 10 words that God spoke, that he would help us to understand their implications for our lives today. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who reveals yourself through um, your words, through scripture written down, Lord God. And so as we look at it together now, you are revealing yourself to us by your spirit. Please, Lord God, would we get to know you better, not just knowing about you, but knowing you, the true and living God, by your spirit. Meet with us now, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the past uh, few weeks as we've been going through this series in, uh, in Exodus, looking at what it means to be set free, to live free, you'll know that we've been saying that one of the great themes of Exodus is God's name. Uh, your name in the ancient world was who you, um, who you were. It revealed the things you like, the things you dislike, your character, your nature. So when God reveals his name, he's talking about describing and helping people to understand and grasp who he is, the things that he loves, the things that he disapproves of, uh, the type of character and nature that he has. And as we come to the Ten Commandments, this is all about as well, revealing how we should live and in the context of how we should live, revealing who God is and what he's like. Uh, in Exodus chapter 6, which is one of the kind of formative passages for the whole of Exodus, God said this. You don't need to turn to it, but it's Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 7. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. In other words, it's as God takes his people, redeems them from Egypt and from slavery, gathers them around the mountain and gives them the Ten Commandments, and then finally takes them into the promised land. Through those actions, those great actions of salvation, he is revealing what he is really like. And if that is the case, then taken together with the Passover lamb, which we looked at a few weeks back, this is, as the giving of the Ten Commandments, God's magnum opus. Uh, that means great work. Often when you're talking about composers or writers um, or artists, you talk about their magnum opus, the defining work, the defining thing that reveals their creative genius, their wonderful character and nature, their ability. 
And taken with the, um, uh, the Passover lamb, I'd put it to you that this is God's magnum opus in the Old Testament, the giving of the Ten Commandments. When Beethoven was asked what his greatest work was, of course, we debate nowadays, was it his fifth or his ninth symphony, but he said it was his Missa Solemnis, maybe lesser known work, but it's interesting. He thought this was his great work that revealed his music ability and his heart, so much so that he wrote on the top of the first page um, of the sheet music, from the heart, may it return to the heart. Well, friends, dare I say that the Ten Commandments are written from God's heart, revealing his heart to us. And in that sense, it's vital for us today because in London, there's a lot of confusion about who God is. Is there one God, many gods, no God? And particularly confusion about the God of the Bible. What is he really like? Caricatures abound. And very few adults in my um, experience have actually looked at the Bible for themselves to see what God is really like as he reveals himself to be. Not only that, but there's also a lot of confusion about the Ten Commandments. And also, in the context, it's interesting that in our culture, there's a lot of confusion about how we should live. Uh, sociologists point out that unusually for a culture, we don't really have a coherent set of moral and ethical standards in Western culture anymore. We, we don't kind of um, agree on how we should live. Interestingly, though, in that context, we are very ethically sensitive so it doesn't take a lot to get a hashtag campaign going on social media, does it? Hashtag me too. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. I mean, all of these are really important. They're important campaigns, and they show that we feel a kind of sense of, you know, a strong reaction to ethical issues, but there is just great inconsistency. I wonder if that struck you. So we campaign against the abuse of power and sexual exploitation in Hollywood, and absolutely rightly so. We should campaign against those things. But at the same time, in the West, and there's no polite way of saying this, we are the biggest single users of pornography. And anybody who does a moment's digging knows that pornography perpetuates the greatest amount of the human slave trade and the greatest subjugation and abuse of power on women in the world. So how we can campaign against the one, the minor problem, even though a significant problem, but not campaign against the other? And we just have no coherence, no set of framework for how to live life, completely inconsistent. And for us, we need God's word so that we don't just react, but actually we understand how to live in his world for mutual flourishing, for mutual liberty, and for mutual benefit as we come to understand who he is and what he's like. So let's look uh, closely at these uh, Ten Commandments. And uh, let's look, first of all, at the holiness of the Ten Commandments, the holiness of the Ten Commandments. The reason that we had uh, chapter 19 read was because it gives the important context in which we have the Ten Commandments given to God's people. And everything about chapter 19 shouts out of God's holiness. Uh, look at chapter 19, verses 10 to 12. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Why all the rigmarole? Why the careful preparation and consecration? Because the opportunity is coming to meet with God. And that is a, both a wonderful thing and also a terrifying thing because God is holy. Holiness in the Bible means morally pure, perfect, set apart. It talks about the way that there is no 
comparison to God. He has no peers, no rivals, no equals. He is totally other, separate, morally perfect. So look at when he actually does kind of engage and reveal his presence to his people in chapter 19, verse 16. Look at what it means. On the morning of the third day, verse 16, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. When God reveals himself to his people, when God's nature is shown, it shakes the very foundations of the mountains. The earth trembles. Such is his utter moral purity. And the Ten Commandments speak of his utter moral purity, his determination in every aspect of life for there to be goodness, moral perfection. Now, we need to be careful. As we talk of holiness, let me just say what we're not saying, two wrong views we have in culture. We're not talking about being holier than thou, a kind of sanctimonious, self-righteous judgmentalism. That is not what God is like. I wonder if you noticed when we had it read that the Lord talks about um, mercy to a thousand generations. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. He is good. He's not self-righteous or judgmental or holier than thou. He is utter goodness. But we also need to be aware of the corresponding danger, which is when we hear moral purity and goodness, we think of that great Western virtue being nice. Now, niceness is fine, but it's a bit insipid. And so most people, when you ask them about the Ten Commandments, say things like this, thoughtless things, but they say things like, I'm not perfect, but I reckon I keep most of them. Really? I mean, how's the Ninth Commandment going for you this week? That's do not lie, by the way. Are you keeping that this week? Oh, yeah, I tell a few white lies, as Hope Hicks said under testimony recently. White lies? Well, that's just a lie. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Half-truths. Yeah, that's a lie also. Exaggerations, that's also a lie. You see, when God is revealing his moral purity and perfection, he's not asking us just to be nice. He's saying you've got to be utterly morally perfect in every sphere of life. And as soon as we hear that, we push back and we say, well, that just sounds like too harsh. But if you read the Ten Commandments, here's a moral challenge for you. Read the Ten Commandments and you tell me if the world would not be a perfect place if we lived that way. No murder, no adultery, perfect relationships with parents in the family, no distortions, no truths, no spin, no lies, no covetousness and greed. So we'd have no poverty by implication. And that above all, treating God the way that God should be treated. It would be a perfect world. So the problem is not with the standards. The problem is with us and our inability to keep the standards, the holiness of God. He is utterly perfect and he wants nothing short of perfection for you and for his world. He will not settle with being nice, though for some of us that might be a good place to start. The holiness of the Ten Commandments. But secondly, we need to put it rightly in context and look at the grace of the Ten Commandments because one of the other misconceptions about the Ten Commandments is that this is God's moral self-improvement plan for humanity. And if we do these things, then he will be happy with us and then he will gift us his blessings. That is not what is going on here. Look at the order very carefully. Look at chapter 20, verse 2 with me. And notice the order. Grace comes first before any moral commandments. Chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, God saves before he calls to obedience. 
God initiates before he asks anything from us. God redeems his people, liberates them from slavery in Egypt before he gives them a single thing to do. They are totally passive in the redemption from Egypt. He does everything. He sends the sacrifice of the Passover. He initiates the plagues to break the yoke of oppression of Pharaoh. He leads them through the Red Sea. He defeats Pharaoh's army. He gathers them around the mountain. He has done it all. Grace. Mercy, God has done everything. The only thing the people have done at this point is follow him through the Red Sea and cry out to him in prayer. God has done it all. Grace. And only on the back of grace does God say, so live this way. Now, just to put this in context, here stands arguably the great dividing line between Christianity and every other major world religion. In Christianity, God says, I will show my grace to you. I will be gracious to you. And in the light of that grace, I have shown to you, so I call you now to obey me. And every other world religion says, not so many words, if you want blessing, if you want enlightenment, if you want salvation, you need to do these things to get it. The order is completely the opposite way around. So my friends, please, when you read the Ten Commandments, this is not moral self-improvement. This is living as a redeemed people, live free on the back of having been set free. Let me try to give you an illustration that shows the difference. Back when the slave trade was rife, there was a um, market of slaves going on. And in the midst of one of the slaves to be sold was a young girl who was absolutely terrified, as you would be. And the uh, potential slave owners gathered around to make their bids. And unknown to the crowd, one man slipped in who was a wealthy Christian. And when the bidding started, he immediately bid for the little girl, and he bid up a price that was twice of anything that anybody would pay for a slave. So the auctioneer, overwhelmed, suddenly heard it and said, sold to the man at the back. So the man then went over to collect the papers of ownership of the slave girl, and the slave girl was presented to him, and then he did something that no one expected. As he received the papers, he handed the papers over to the slave girl, and he said, As you hold these and as you keep these, these are the ownership of you. This shows that you are now free. I have bought you. You are now set free. And he turned to walk away. The girl grasped those papers, utterly stunned, as you would do. And she started repeating to herself as she tried to work out the magnitude of what had happened. He bought me to set me free. He bought me to to set me free. He bought me to set me free. And then seeing the man walk off into the distance, she, she ran after him and she grabbed his hand. And as he turned around, she said, you bought me to set me free? I will follow you wherever you go. That is grace. That is what is going on here. God has bought his people by the blood of the sacrifice, the Passover lamb, and through the blood of the Lord Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, to set them free. And so now he says to us, Follow me, not because by doing it we earn his salvation. The salvation has been given. But in response to the salvation, that is always the way in the Bible. God initiates, God shows us grace, and now he calls us to live as his free people. And given how holy he is, that is so reassuring because we would have no hope otherwise. But he calls us into relationship with him. Now, having got that logged in your brains, I just want to be a bit nuanced here because there is a difference between what is going on in Exodus and what goes on for us as those who are this side of the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, The old covenant here, this is the old way of relating 
um, by God to his people is different to the new covenant, which is the covenant that Jesus secures by his life, death, and resurrection in a few subtle ways. Both the old and the new covenant are covenants of grace, but there is a conditionality in the old covenant that is not there in the new covenant. And I want you to see this. I don't want to confuse you with it, but some of you need to kind of know this. And so as you're looking at it, just um, bear with me. Look down at chapter 19, verses 4 to 5. Now, bear in mind this is a covenant of grace, but also listen to this. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, chapter 19, verse 4, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. There is the grace. Now, verse 5, now if you obey me fully, there's the conditionality, and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. So do you see there, it is still a grace-filled covenant, but there is a conditionality, that is that God's ongoing blessings or God's ongoing curses for disobedience are still dependent on how God's people live. That is not the case in the new covenant. So keep a finger on page 77 and flick forward with me now to 1 Peter chapter 2. Flick all the way forward in the Bible. It comes after Hebrews, after James. On page 1,218, 1,218, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 9. Page 1218, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. And as you get there, look at how this is different to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant said, if you obey me fully, then out of all the nations you will be my treasure possession. This says... You are a chosen people, a royal priest of the holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Do you notice there is no if? There is no conditionality. Both covenants, the old and the new covenant, are covenants of grace, but the new covenant is unconditional. God's blessings are unconditionally given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection. Whereas under the old covenant... It was a gracious covenant. It was still given to us as a gift by God, but there was conditionality and God's ongoing blessings were conditional on obedience. Now, some of you might say, well, hang on, that doesn't sound very graceful. That sounds more like works. Let me just try to persuade you that it is still a graceful covenant. First, remember that the call to obey in the old covenant is in the context of God's prior saving work. He saves them, then he gives them the covenant. Not, he gives them the covenant in order to save them. That is grace, that's different to works. Secondly, as you read on in Exodus, we're going to see in chapters 27 to 29 that God gives instructions for the building of the tabernacle and at the heart of the tabernacle is an altar and the sacrificial system. And so God's people, as they disobeyed and stuffed up, for example, if you lied in a given week or you didn't honor your parents or, you know, God forbid you committed adultery, there was still forgiveness for you by the offering of a sacrifice. And so God punishes his people by sending them into exile in the Old Testament, not because they don't get things perfect, but because they stop offering acceptable sacrifices and start relying on themselves and try to treat God as a slot machine, thinking if I do these things, he'll be pleased with me, rather than acting according to his grace. Okay, so just try to get the nuance there. It's a gracious covenant, but it's a covenant with conditions in it. The new covenant, praise God, is a gracious covenant, but is unconditional. In other words, to follow the Ten Commandments today, we never do because we think God will bless us if we do it. We do it because God has blessed us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we are set free to live free. 
Well, look, more briefly now, we'll come to the two final points about how this means that we should then live. And let's look, thirdly, at the unity of the Ten Commandments. So come back now to page 77 and to the Ten Commandments. I just want to make a few comments on them as you try to get your head around what they're like. And one of the things is that the Ten Commandments reveal to us the unity of God. Now, this is, I've been hugely helped with this by a little um, booklet called A Treatise on Good Works, written by the reformer Martin Luther. It first was brought to my attention by Dr. Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. And in this little treatise on good good works, um, Martin Luther explains that the Ten Commandments are all shaped by the first commandment. What he goes on to say is he says, you can only keep any of the subsequent commandments if you keep the first commandment. The first commandment is to have no other gods before me. In other words, if you commit idolatry, you will fall into the sin of the other commandments. Uh, Let me try to explain how this works out. Um, Why do people lie? We've been talking about lying, so why do people lie? Well, people don't just lie. They lie because their heart is ultimately worshipping a false god. Maybe their own image of themselves, they love that and worship their image of themselves. And so when someone challenges them about a sin in their life, they can't bear to admit it because then you wouldn't think well of me, so we lie. And we explain to ourselves with the moral flexibility of calling it a white lie or a half-truth but it's a lie. Why do people lie in the workplace? Maybe denigrating a colleague to advance themselves. Well, people lie because their career or their reputation or their CV is functionally speaking, acting like a God to them. They place it as first importance in their lives. They treat it as a God, they worship it, they determine their value by it. And so they have to lie because everything's on the line. So they're happy to play fast and loose with the truths of other people and to promote themselves because that enables them to feel like they're serving that God? Or why do people lie, for example, on social media, often by filtering their profile pictures to make themselves look different to what they are really like? Because they maybe have the idol of beauty or of popularity or acceptance. You see, whatever it is that you are serving other than the true and living God will cause you to break the other commandments. We always break the other commandments because we are not keeping the first commandment. And then also, the first commandment and the last commandment, having no other gods before the true God and do not covet, are actually the same because in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that all covetousness, all greed, all excessive desire is idolatry. So in other words, you see the unity of the Ten Commandments? They are topped and tailed with two commands that read, read through the whole of the other eight commands. And you can only keep the other eight commands if you are keeping those two. So these wonderful Ten Commandments are brought together in a fantastic unity. And that is because God is one God, a God of great unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Ten Commandments have this kind of ecosystem as they bind themselves together, just as God is completely bound together in perfect love and holiness and moral purity. So please don't think that you have got any chance of keeping the Ten Commandments unless you first of all understand what God has done for you and how that transforms you to worship him as the true God. And as you do that, that starts to change your attitude to lying, to sexual sin, to your perception of time and possessions, and starts to transform you so that you actually can start to keep these commandments by his grace. The unity of the Ten Commandments. Lastly, the comprehensiveness of the Ten Commandments. 
They are remarkable. Sometimes, I don't know, you get these um, publications and magazines where people are given the opportunity to come up with their own Ten Commandments. And when you look at those and you compare them to the real Ten Commandments, they are just pale imitations because there is something magnificent about this. This is God, the great composer, revealing his heart from the heart. And as we look at the Ten Commandments, they cover every aspect of life. Let me just give you a bit of a breakdown so you can navigate them a bit. The first four commandments are about how we treat God. The second six commandments are about the social commandments, how we treat one another. Notice the order. How we treat God determines how we treat other people. In other words, our vertical relationship comes before our horizontal interactions in the world. We cannot treat one another rightly unless we have our relationship with God right. So the first four commandments are vital. Within the first four commandments, they cover everything about the religious sphere. A love for the Lord your God showing in how we treat him, having no other gods before him. That means not worshiping false gods. The second commandment, which is you shall not make yourself for an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath, is different to the first commandment. It's, it's saying you shall have a true image of God. You shall let God be God. You shall not say, I like to think that God is dot, 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 and try to fabricate a God of your imagination. So if the first commandment is not setting up a false image, the second, uh, the second commandment is actually letting God be the true image of who he really is, revealing himself to you, letting God be God. The third commandment relates to religious vows and commitments and religious devotion. The fourth commandment is about our sense of time and how we navigate our world and see time, setting aside one day a week as rest, not working and not being a workaholic. So these four commandments are about having God as the real true God, not worshiping false gods, not distorting the true God, vows and commitments and time. Do you see how comprehensive that is just within those four? Now let's look at the social commandments. Notice that the family comes first, surprisingly, before murder, because if we get the family wrong, then all other social ills follow. So the fifth commandment is about honoring your father and mother, getting the family, the nuclear family, correct. And then sixth, you shall not murder, talking about how we view life and the sanctity of life. Seven is about the sanctity of relationships and sexual purity. Eight is about property and how we interact in the context of our property. Nine is about the speech that we use and the words that we use. And 10 is about our desires. So let me just go through the list and see how comprehensive this is. It's about family. It's about life. It's about relationships. It's about sexuality. It's about property. It's about words. It's about desires in your internal life. Has any area been missed? Isn't God magnificent? In 10 brief commands, he has covered the full scope of life. And this is just the executive summary. He's now going to go and expand it out over the rest of the pages of Exodus and also of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But God is concerned with all aspects of life, and so he speaks his moral law into all aspects of life. Such is the nature of the comprehensiveness of God. So as I draw to a close, can you see the holiness of God revealed in his moral purity, the way he wants us to live? The standards are perfect. We are the ones who are flawed. Do you see the grace of God that he says, I have set you free, so now live as free people, not to earn favor with me, but because I've given you my unconditional favor in the new covenant. Do you see the unity of God, that the Ten Commandments are bound together in a perfect unity because God is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And do you see that God cares for all aspects of life in the comprehensiveness of the Ten Commandments? He made it. 
He has redeemed it through the Lord Jesus Christ. He will make it new in the new creation. Such is God's concern for everything we do. So in the light of that, know him as God, worship him as God, and follow him as God. Let me lead us in a prayer that we'd be able to do that by the power of his spirit. Heavenly Father, this is a high bar as we look at these 10 commandments, Lord God, and as we see what it reveals to us about who you are, and as it gives us a moral framework for life, a moral framework that our culture sorely needs and has tragically lost. Lord God, help us not to fall into the trap of thinking that we do these things to earn salvation, but rather help us to remember that you have saved us through the Lord Jesus Christ if we trust in him. And so now as free people, you call us to live out this liberty by following your ways. Gracious God, we can't do this in and of ourselves, but to the extent that you're changed us by your spirit, you give us power to do it. And so we pray that you would empower us and change us individually and as a church family. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.